Welcome in to the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I am Zane Hopin, as always, joined by Chris Cartman and Kalen Jones. And today we are going to talk about ASU's uh, devastating, in a way, loss to USC 48-17 to that occurred last Saturday. And then, uh, as usual, we're going to talk a little bit about the state of the program as this roller coaster season continues in Tempe. But first off, guys, how are we doing? Good, man. How you been? Pretty good. Chris? I'm hanging in there. Hanging in there. Good. Good, good, good. So, uh, you know, Chris, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but you've predicted almost every game for ASU wrong this year. Would you like to defend yourself or, or concede? Well, uh, I got New Mexico State right. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. No, I, I definitely uh, have had my worst year of prognosticating ASU, but I would also say uh, in my defense that this has been the, the wildest season that of ASU football in memory. And, and it's not just – uh, me who feels this way I just talking to people who have been around the program a long time we were just I was just talking to Gene Boyd about this before practice and he said he doesn't remember a season that had this much volatility or unpredictability you talk to people in ASU's media relations department who have been around a really long time or others in administration pretty much everybody says the same thing um, there have been some games that you thought would be close games or competitive it could go either way I thought San Diego State was probably going to be more competitive than most people, but didn't predict ASU to lose. Texas Tech, you know, anticipated that was going to be a – I thought that was going to be a close game. Um, ASU didn't play well, and the Kron Crump injury, I think, was a, a big factor. Nobody thought ASU was going to beat Washington. I bet, like, 99% of people, you know, had that game wrong. Utah, injuries and, and whatnot. And then uh, the USC game definitely – thought ASU would have a better performance coming off of what happened the last couple weeks and um, but 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 no it's just a very very unpredictable team and you just really don't know what you're going to get from a week-to-week basis in terms of the coaching uh, game plan execution fundamentals uh, just uh, they're capable of making prognosticators look foolish and uh, Kaylin what do you think about this your, your perspective on how the season's unfolded. It's been weird um, because obviously going into the, I don't think too many people were optimistic about this team going in. Um, I mean, obviously like the PAC 12, you know, poll or whatever, having ASU finished at the bottom of the conference or in the division or whatever it was. But um, it, it's been odd just to see this transformation because we saw, you know, the lack of, you know, cohesion between the coaching staff and then some of it starting to come together. But, you know, the old demons, as we talked about, during the game, like there's still issues with this team that they still need to render and they're not fully, I guess like old wounds that haven't fully healed in a sort of sense. But it, I, I, I give them credit for where they're at. Like to be formed for at this point in the season, I, I think all in all, you, you can say that this has been more or less a, a good uh, season, at least at this point, than you could say negative. Um, obviously, again, like the things that they need to fix are still the same issues, which, you know, the definition of insanity is still doing the same thing over and over again without any change. So until there's some sort of fix to that and consistency with that, then, you know, I'm not too surprised by the season flipping either way. I think it's just more enigmatic as we said during the game. Yeah. If you just looked at the record and said four and four, we would all be like, yeah, that makes sense. Right. Like if we didn't know what happened to get to the four and four, it, it would just be totally understandable because we all expected ASU would be 500 plus or minus a game. That looks like what it's going to be. It's just the wins 
are not the ones you necessarily expected <laughs> and the losses aren't necessarily the ones that you expected but it is pretty much you know looking like a 500 football team depending on what happens in this last month but i know zane is over here wanting to talk in detail about the usc game yeah sure why not he's <laughs> thrilled about this <laughs> again uh the final score 48 to 17 uh you know, again, like we keep saying, just not the team that that we had seen in the last couple of weeks from ASU. USC nearly doubled ASU up in in uh, first downs, twenty nine to fifteen. Uh, ASU was one for twelve on third down. USC nearly fifty percent at seven of sixteen, uh, six hundred and seven total yards for the Trojans. And and Manny Wilkins actually outgained outgained Darnold in the air by by twelve yards. But it was Ronald Jones who alone outgained, like we said in our post-game show, outgained Utah and Washington in the last couple of weeks against ASU. Just, you know, something we talked about in previewing this game was, you know, whether or not the Utah and Washington games were a fluke because of the skill position, you know, capabilities mm-hmm. of Washington and Utah, and whether or not USC would expose ASU for what it really is, yeah. I guess. And, and that's really exactly what it was. Yeah, it was. And we talked about it before, like the fact that ASU isn't able to do certain things just because they have a limitation in terms of talent in comparison to the teams that they've played before. And we mentioned it, the three playmakers at receiver in particular. Uh, the fact that you have uh, Deontay Barn- Burnett and Tyler Vaughns, uh, Stephen Mitchell, as well as Ronald Jones all paired together uh, with a good quarterback. I, it, it was just too much and probably perhaps too overwhelming for ASU's defense, especially considering the fact that ASU's offense wasn't able to get anything going. Um, in that sense, it's really exactly what we were saying before, Zane. Just uh, what I was struck by in the game was it, it, it felt like it, USC was the better team, but early on it was a competitive game you look at the the, the way the first quarter sort of was unfolding mm-hmm. you know it's usc scores on its first drive that was scripted offense uh asu struggling to kind of move the ball and get into any rhythm and can't convert any of its third downs but the game is like seven three until you have the the tayshawn smallwood um uh, call that went against him that was a personal foul where maybe he didn't hear the whistle maybe he was was pushed into Sam Darnold I'm not really sure what happened but then he got another one on the next play for knocking the helmet off of a lineman and uh, but even after that drive it's 14 to 3 at the end of the first quarter USC has 138 yards ASU has 80 yards and you're saying okay, not a very good start for ASU, but not something that looks like it was going to end up being what the final score was. And then it just sort of got away from ASU. And beyond the third down issues that ASU had, um, I I feel like there was just an inability of figuring out how to try to contend with Sam Darnold. They pressured more in this game than they had in the past. I think trying to force the issue with Sam Darnold, that didn't really work because of the tackling. And then offensively, it was like they couldn't really gain purchase and figure out what was the best way to be successful and try to get something going. They didn't use some of the uh, unconventional packages that we had seen in previous games. And um, and then the game just sort of bled away from them, um, you know, with the big plays, um, which reminded of you know Bryce Love and Stanford and some of the earlier games that ASU had and not like the two more recent games yeah and another note before we really get into into the matchup 
we wrote about this yesterday, but the so Todd Graham, since he's been at ASU, has had three games where his, his team has penalized nine or more times. All three of those games was um, officiated by the same guy. Same head referee. The same head referee. What what was his name again? It was Land Clark. Yeah, Clark. Was his name? Uh, yeah. I got to look it up. It, yes. Yeah. Just a, a weird point, and I don't know if you guys really want to talk about it because <laughs> it's, it's hard to obviously speculate on these things, which we're not going to do. But, you know... Oh, we could speculate. It's funny. We're going to speculate? <laughs> All right, Caleb, why don't you speculate for us? <laughs> oh, I mean, I don't know what to make of it. Like, if you have a referee who went to a rival school and tends to, have, I guess, like, have ominous play or call, or ref or play, I don't know how to explain it, foul calls. Uh, my my analogy would be like, <laughs> my analogy would be like, you know, in, in baseball, you have a home plate umpire who mm-hmm. has a tighter strike zone versus... A, lo- a looser strike zone and that's like something that as long as it's consistent the players understand it and they they're fine with that right, right? so it, it it does seem like land clark the official who also did the he also um, was in charge of asu's loss at washington last year and then the 61 55 triple overtime lost uh to oregon in 2015 in which there were a couple questionable calls that really uh, went against ASU and, and helped decide that game, including that long touchdown to Braylon Addison that was at the back of the uh, mm-hmm. end zone, and clearly he had a foot on the line. Now, Clark is very well respected in the profession because he did the 2011 and 2014 Pac-12 championship games. He did the 2013 BCS National Championship game. So obviously he's, he's, he's been well-reviewed by in the process by which they evaluate officiating okay so i think what we can take from this is he there he's going to err on the side of throwing a flag versus not throwing a flag or his crew is is is, i think at a minimum you could take from this is they're more apt to call things that they see as gray area that are as fouls uh you know tighter strike zone, whatever you want to analogize, whatever that's analogous to. (laughs) (laughs) It's an analogy of some kind. (laughs) So, um, but, but, uh, but it's peculiar, right? To have the same crew, the same head referee. And some of those calls really bemused Todd Graham because he really didn't know what to say about it in Monday's press conference. He said twice, like, that's all I can really say about that, or I'm not going to say anything else about that. That's sort of like coach speak for, I don't really want to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but but interesting, to say the least, that that, that kind of happened. And, you know, I, I thought that um, the Smallwood one, it's not like he crushed Sam Darnold or anything. You know, he didn't yeah. contact him. It was after. Usually you you watch in the NFL and those things get let go. Mm. Um, and Darnold patted him on the back afterwards too, I believe. Yeah, Darnold was fine helmet. with it. I think Just, he understood. I think he knew that he got away with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> small, maybe. Small, yeah, I got you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, Smallwood was jumping up and down and then, and then he had the next penalty and then he had one later in the game. Mm. But but uncharacteristic, you know, primarily Zane because ASU is is like the least penalized major conference team in the country over the last five years under Graham, and that's why it's a little bit puzzling that right. when the same head referees in charge that you you know all of a sudden start committing a bunch of penalties. Hmm. And and you mentioned how respected he is. I believe all three of those games that he's done for ASU were all ESPN games as well. Yes. 
uh, the Oregon one was, and I think the Washington one was last year too. I think it was. A, I think it was an ESPN so I, I, game. Yeah, just I don't know if that has anything I, to do with anything. I, I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to put your your top referees on, on ESPN games if you're the Pac-12? Uh, do you think that that's? I don't know if this. That's interesting. I, I I think we need to look into whether the assignments. I, I, that was just that was just something that stood out. All three of those games were ESPN mm-hmm. national. Well, they could decide to put their best crews on games that are perceived to be bigger games. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they maybe they have a pecking order of their of the crews. I think that's something that we should look into and try to report out. Yeah, yeah. Just another interesting thing that I guess we'll be following. Yeah. From, from this point on, but back back to the game. Um, I guess we kind of talked a little bit about the penalties, but. Something that was a little more characteristic um, of this ASU team that we've seen in the last couple of seasons, especially, was the missed tackling. Mm-hmm. And something that really was not a problem at all against Washington and Utah. And again, that can that can be attributed to the lack of skill players or, and whatnot. But, you know, Ronald Jones, I mean, Tyler Vaughn's that one-on-one with Kobe Williams, and he just broke that one free. Kobe Williams has been playing lights out the last couple of weeks. Just uncharacteristic in a characteristic way, I guess, is the, <laughs> is the best way to put it. Yeah, uh, it's not too surprising. And, you know, you give credit to USC just, one, for putting their players in position to take advantage of ASU's, you know, let, let's be real, lack of talent. I mean, they they weren't the better team on the football field by any stretch of the mind last week, and they weren't game planning well enough to put their players in position. And, again, like we, we pointed out early in the game, like they they were going right at Kobe Williams. Like if, if anything, that was the first time – we had seen a team since probably Stanford really challenge him, particularly in the passing game. Stanford challenged uh, Kobe Williams in the run game, but this was the first time we saw Kobe Williams really thrown out and challenged out in the field side and forcing ASU players in space to make tackles, which, you know, to their credit this year, they've been improved in. But, again, against a talented team with guys who, you know, need like two or three guys where you need population to the football, otherwise they're going to run to the, you know, take it to the house if, you know, give them – all five yards of space, and it, it just—I don't know what to make of it. It just kind of—it looked like old ASU. That's why I'm not full, like full-blown surprised by this, but it is what it is. A, f- a few thoughts here. Uh, one, a lot, some of these missed tackles were um, more glaring because of the fact that they were bringing five and six man pressures and playing man coverage behind it where mm. if one guy misses you can't populate to the football right. Kobe Williams missed tackle on that out one route on that gets you know turned back inside and and goes for a touchdown that was because he's the only guy that's that possibly could have been there right. and you know he's thinking that the guy's going to continue to run into the, you know to the boundary on that on the out route um, and another thing is of course USC has a higher caliber athlete than some of these other teams, including Washington and Utah, and there's more of them, right? So they have a a better ability to make players miss than some of the other teams at ASU's played. Ronald Jones was, I thought, outstanding uh, in this game. We've seen some great backs that ASU's played this year, and he was was up there. Um, Another thing that I think is important to point out is – USC is different than some of the other teams that ASU's played – if you look at like Washington, they have a great ability to scheme for mismatches, and then they try to take advantage of that, but they didn't necessarily have the personnel to do it. USC's scheme isn't as sophisticated as some of these other teams, but they still figured out a way to pick on ASU's weaker personnel in ways that took advantage. Uh, they primarily did this by running at J.J. Wilson, 
trying to get yeah. doubles onto him. They took advantage of Daz Tauralatasi with a lot of these uh, twin sets into the boundary where they ran verticals into his zone, and, 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 and he's better coming up and making plays moving forward and better against the run usually than he is in trying to manage space and handle vertical threats in his area. Uh, ASU really struggled with that. Uh, he also had the, the missed tackle coming off the edge on that that one uh, Ronald Jones run was 63, 67 yards, something like that. So, um, so even though the scheme and the way that and, and it's not like they use motions and shifts really creatively to try to get those mismatches, they still figured out a way to pick on ASU's uh, uh, worst personnel or, or or the the areas in which the personnel weren't at their best, and they did a great job of that. And so I think they that you have to credit USC for its ability to do that. And when you have better athletes on the field, especially skill athletes, that's uh, a, that's a successful strategy more often than not. And on the offensive side of the ball, Chris, we can, we touched on this in our post game show as well. But um, you know what Billy Napier's done in the last couple weeks, regardless of the competition, which I mean, Washington and Utah, two of some of the better defenses in the conference, mm-hmm. he's been extremely creative. In, in getting his playmakers the ball, whether it be in the Sparky or in the Ram or in the passing game with, with screens and such. Or the Patriot. Or the Patriot, yeah, that was the other one. Um, but and, and another thing to go along with this, we, we talked to players and coaches leading up to this game about the impact Cam Smith has at middle linebacker for USC, and, and there were some mixed answers. I mean, whether or not they want to say they're intimidated, obviously. But um, Napier seemed to stay away from the middle of the field all game. And it was really something that was kind of odd because it's something they have used a lot, you know, in the run game and with Jalen Harvey especially. But you know, just a weird game for Napier. I don't, I don't really know yeah. how else to put it. Yeah, I, I didn't like the play calling in that game either. I thought it was really suspect, especially in the fact that, you know, obviously Nikhil Harry is going to get double teamed, but you find a way to get him the football. Like you, you force feed the dude and on the perimeter. And then to your point. Up the middle was where it, excuse me, USC was at its weakest. They didn't have Josh Fatu in that game. Obviously, Cam Smith no, is – Fatu the, played some. Or he did. Limited. He did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's limited reps. Like, he's not yeah. he's not at full speed. Uh, obviously, they have Rasheem Green. I didn't think that they ran enough off tackle. They didn't try to get Cam Balaj out in space, obviously, because he was um, – His dealing illness with the virus, hurt, Yeah, hurt. the virus or whatever it was that he was sick with. But I, I, I feel like outside of that tempo – drive out of the gate and out of halftime I think aside from that you didn't really see any spark or you know type of impact from ASU's offense well, whatsoever drill down on what you're talking about there Kaylee because if you look at the the their touchdown drive coming out in the second half you had that Eno Benjamin run that was off tackle mm-hmm. where they were quick to the edge and they had a 16 17 yard run they through a lot of these bubble screens on the perimeter to yeah. to Kyle Williams there, where he really was able to take advantage, they forced the they forced the issue. We didn't see that much of that in the first half. Yeah, they, that's what I'm saying. There was no like get the ball to Nikhil Harry in space, mm-hmm. get the ball to Nikhil Harry in uh, your Sparky package. They didn't do the Ram stuff to try to run the ball down USC's throat early, or even go to heavier personnel sets yeah. with two tight ends. You know two backs, 22 personnel. They did once or twice where they ran like a sweep to Eno Benjamin, but it, it didn't work. 
what I noticed as a flaw of USC before this game and scouting it was John Houston, the other inside linebacker with Cam Smith, was very susceptible to play actions and getting into a flow where it's, it's against the grain of where you're actually going with the play. Yeah. And ASU mm-hmm. ran its plays exactly as to the flow of, of what you were, were expecting. So you're actually leading a great athlete in John Houston to the play. And what I noticed was he was really always in position to make plays because you weren't doing things that were uh, tricking his eye discipline. And, and I think that's kind of what you have to do with a team like USC. And then I thought their third down plays were kind of low percentage. Always. Right? Yeah. You look at, yeah, like, yeah. they had three, third and fourth, five, six, and they're throwing, like, back shoulder fades to Nikhil Harry and jump balls and just, like, kind of, like, why? Like, why aren't you running things that have worked for you really successfully in the past against this team? And, and, and maybe part of it was Clancy Pendergast, USC's defensive coordinator, uh, keeping Manny Wilkins from really having a good perspective on what they were trying to do. I think Wilkins had a regression game here. He missed open receivers. He he sometimes threw to the wrong guy. He was a little bit more stressed in the pocket, I thought, in this game and not really knowing what he should do and why and how at times. Um, so I think, that, I think that his being a little out of balance also maybe affected Napier's decision-making from a play-calling standpoint and, and what they were doing. Uh, but just very disjointed overall from ASU offensively. I don't. I don't think that it, the preparation, the game plan, the execution. I don't think any of it was really good. Yeah, and and another thing to go on top of that. One of the things that I felt like they were really generating the most of their offense out of in the passing game the last couple of weeks was the design rollouts. Yeah, that's and, it. And just where every everyone just runs to one side and they flood. And I feel like they only did that a handful of times in this game. That's another and, good point. And it's just like. Like you said, it's another one of those things where it's like when you have a USC defense that's undisciplined, keep them off their toes and not show them the most basic sort of thing. And it's like, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't not even, not I don't much, know. not much of that. Not much, uh, uh, you know, snag concepts where they ran. You know, there weren't a lot of triangles coming out of bunch sets. Right. There wasn't a lot of zone read stuff in the open field where Wilkins was deciding to keep it. Maybe Porter Gustin's playing in this game had some impact Definitely. on that to some degree but that was a real problem Notre Dame just and Notre Dame has a great offensive line and, and that's that's a huge factor the reality is ASU wasn't able to get to the second level with its linemen to pick up linebackers on inside run but when that's the case you got to bring an extra mm-hmm. you know blocker into the game yeah. or two blockers into the game and figure out a way to, to go at that you got to figure out how to hit against the grain stuff. You got to you got to do some of these rollouts that get your receivers and more time for Wilkins to figure out what he's going to do in triple option plays. I just don't think that was really in to the game plan in this game in a way that that it, that it probably should have been. And um, I, I don't know if they had a conversation, but but Todd Graham has two of his former coaches, Chip Long and Dell Alexander, who are at Notre Dame. And Chip Long called a great offensive game plan against USC. They could have had a conversation and said, oh, here's what really worked and here's you know what I thought. And maybe that happened, maybe it didn't, but, but whatever the case, it didn't, it didn't translate into what they, what they were doing there. So no, I, actually, any final thoughts before we, we get into the broader sense? Why didn't they attack Isaiah Langley more is also odd to me. They went, they, well, Jack Jones trailing the kill Harry. Yeah, the entire game. But, but well, maybe John Humphrey wasn't 100%, but I feel like it was time to get more vertical stuff to the other side of the field yeah, opposite exactly. Ron, Ronald Jones. Exactly. I thought yeah, that was odd. I agree with that. 
nothing else. <laughs> we're ready. We're ready to to get back into our big roller coaster perspective. <laughs> let's go to the big. Let's go to the big picture. All right, cool. Well, uh, well, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about about Graham, but we're gonna we're gonna really really get into it on our premium podcast here later in the week. But uh, just quick thoughts on Graham and and really where he stands right now because the roller coaster continues. I think that you look at the outlook. You know, moving forward, this is a new staff. He's got a lot of young players. I think you give the dude the benefit of the doubt, in my opinion, just all things considered. Like, he flipped it. So you start off with a rough stretch against teams that you probably should have beat, but you go into the toughest stretch of your year. And really, ultimately, guys, like, they went 2-1 and one against the gauntlet. Like, they're going into the easier stretch. And, I mean, we'll see how the rest of the season turns out. But I think there's a lot of positives that you can take because really and truly they haven't peaked. There's been no point where either unit, in my opinion, has, like, reached its full potential. So I think going into – like, with that in mind throughout the rest of the season, as long as you see trends and signs of of the potential being reached, I think his job should be safe moving forward. So what happened in previous seasons is what reduced the margin – of error for Graham in this season, mm. fair or otherwise, I think that's just a reality of it. Uh, we've been saying for weeks now that every game is like the most important game of Graham's career because uh, you know for him to to stumble and end up getting fired would be just such a monumental setback to where what right. to his whole reality at this where he's at age wise and. And with what ASU's done infrastructurally to build, you know, the the the, the get Sunnyvale Stadium kind of reconfigured and the football operations building and all that. So now it's like they could afford to, to lose to USC, but then that reduces the margin of error for the next month of the schedule. So it's like you can't lose to Colorado, you can't lose to Oregon State, and then you got to win at least one more of those other games to f- get to seven wins to feel like you can go into a meeting with Ray Anderson and sell progress. You know, you have to be able to sell progress. You had two losing seasons in a row. One of those is a bowl season, but bad. Your defense has sort of gained some traction here this season. There's been setbacks. Uh, what you said, Kalen, is very true about all this staff turn turnover and how you have to sort of account for that in the way that you evaluate Graham. Uh, but I think we'll talk a lot more about that in the premium, as you said, Zane. But for now, so ASU sitting at four and four, obviously, you know, like you said, how they got there, no one could have predicted, but they are four and four, something that could be predicted. But now you have four winnable games left. I think that's safe to say all four are winnable, whether or not they go four and oh, definitely you know, probably not, but definitely a possibility. So now thinking from a bowl perspective, you're trying to gain bowl eligibility, obviously U of A just gain bowl eligibility. So <laughs> you're, you're trying to catch them now. And then that last game could come down to it. So, I mean, Odds of becoming bowl eligible, pretty good, I'd say. I think it's. I mean, it's literally fifty-fifty. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's any better. I really think it's a coin flip, just because one week you'll see the you know the ASU growing towards potential as we've seen against the last couple of weeks, and then you'll see the same ASU team that played last week, the one that played against Texas Tech and started up late. So here are my questions for you guys, and then I'll give my perspective. Uh, ASU four and four, four games left. Colorado at UCLA, Oregon State, and hosting Arizona. What is the most likely? What would you say are the three most likely records for ASU in the regular season, at the end of the season, in order? Okay, I'll start. I I like six and six as mm-hmm. the most likely. 
Um, and then I guess more likely that they win one of th- one of the next four yeah. or two of the next yeah. or, or three of the next four. Three of the next four. That's what you have um, to decide. Is I'd go one? five and seven as second, and yeah. then seven and five. Yeah. You guys say five and seven yeah. is second most likely. Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna say I'm gonna I'm gonna go the other way. I'm gonna say slightly more likely of seven and five versus mm-hmm. five and seven, but the, the the reason why I asked that the point is that mm-hmm. this just shows how tenuous that the thing really is. Right. Um, for this team, bull prospects, everything else, and obviously if they lose to Colorado, they're in a lot of trouble as it relates to their to everything, yep. bull prospects and yep. everything else. Everything. Yeah. So. Um, that's maybe a little bit of an ominous way to end the podcast, but well, I mean, I mean, just one more thing to go along with that. I mean, you're not playing; you're playing four teams that you also don't know what you're going to get out of them. I mean, these are probably the four other good most point. unpredictable teams <laughs> in the conference. Yeah, that Colorado just played its absolute best game by far uh, against Cal in its blowout win. I thought Colorado was going to be better than it was this season because I thought Montez wouldn't be as big of a drop off, yeah. and they would you know, be okay on defense enough. But now that the offense just played lights out against Cal, which has been pretty good in, in, in earlier games defensively this season. And so now you're thinking if you're ASU, you might get Colorado's best and Colorado blew ASU out last year. I think so. Yeah. And Philip Lindsay ran all over the place and, and they might. got three good receivers. Oh, we're going to talk about this also in, in, <laughs> in, in the premium, but yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, I guess. I guess the point was the most predictable outcome. I guess a lot of fans will have will be a win against Oregon State, and they just gave Stanford without Bryce Love, mm-hmm. of course. But still, like to give Stanford a run at all, given where they're at right now, Oregon <laughs> State. I mean, that's still. You go to Oregon that's State. That's got to scare you a little bit. Well, you go to Oregon State pretty much any time in November if you're ASU, and that's a scary game for the Sun Devils. I mean, people will remember what happened in 2014. You know, yep. and. They're number six, and you know Oregon State was like, you know, not supposed, not very good, uh, and they lost in like 20 degree weather or whatever it was. So, so absolutely, and that's I guess this is sort of fleshing out the reason why you guys think five and seven is a little bit more likely than than seven and five, which I totally, totally understand. Any parting words? Have a good week. (laughs) See you on Thursday. Um, Parting words. Parting words are parting words. Again, <laughs> thanks for listening. We'll, we'll have much more as usual on our premium podcast that will come out later in the week, get you ready for Colorado. But uh, until then, thanks for listening.